My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. All right, I've had a couple martinis tonight, which means I probably shouldn't be recording a podcast, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, because if I don't do it tonight, I don't know when I'll be able to get to it, and I've already tweeted that I'm going to release one this weekend, so forces beyond me, social media, mean I have to do this podcast regardless of my coherence and blood alcohol level. So for this episode, I'm taking you with me to Hamilton, Ohio, and Estero, Florida, We're going there to find memorials to the hollow earth theory. Let me say that slower because it deserves more emphasis. We're going to find memorials to the hollow earth theory. Now, I've always preferred hollow earthers to flat earthers who are all the rage these days. It's just a lot more fun to me to think about civilizations beneath our feet, beneath this dirt that we stand on, than it is to think about ourselves flopping around on a wet dinner plate. So let's start in Ohio. Let's go to Ohio for this first part of the Hollow Earth tour. (laughs) And you're going to have to imagine with me. You're going to have to imagine me, a middle-aged white guy in a park, being interrogated by a 12-year-old black kid. You mean there's a dead guy under this thing? That was the black kid. He asked me and he was showing the appropriate amount of skepticism. Again, I was an old white stranger who had pulled up to his neighborhood park in a car with out-of-state plates and a camera in my hand. This thing that he referred to was a nine-foot-tall stone obelisk surrounded by a wrought iron gate and topped by what looked like a Death Star, as in Star Wars. I don't know if you've heard of that, but a Star Wars Death Star. Google it, I guess. Yes, I replied. Was he famous? The kid asked. Well, I mean, maybe once upon a time. See, he had this weird theory, and here I was interrupted by the kid. He said, hey, but that hey wasn't to me. It was to one of his friends who was perched on a branch in the tree that was shading us from the summer sun. This boy looks up to his friend and says to him, this guy says there's a dead body under this thing here. Did you know that? The boy in the tree gave a noncommittal response, as did the other boy in the tree. There are multiple boys in this tree, in this park, and neither one of them wanted to really acknowledge the fact that there was a stranger here claiming there's a dead body in their park. However, at this clamor, at this kind of grouping, other kids started pulling up close to us on their bicycles. They didn't try to engage me, though. So imagine it. I'm suddenly surrounded by uh, young black kids uh, in their neighborhood. Uh, And I, again, am a stranger who shouldn't be there and shouldn't be telling them that there are dead bodies in the place they like to play. But they didn't care about the rest of the story. Honestly, they were like dead guy in the park was a story enough for them. So they just watched me photograph the monument from every angle and then eventually took off. So what I didn't get a chance to tell them was this entire park that they were parking their bikes on, Ludlow Park in Hamilton, Ohio, used to be a graveyard. Many, most, a lot of the bodies had been removed a long time ago, but the story went that the body of the man whom the 19th century obelisk marked still moldered below that monument. So there was at least one body still in that X graveyard. 
Now, let's talk about that memorial. It seemed to be cobbled together from old and new bits of stone, and on it were various plaques and inscriptions. All of them, though, together told the story of a single man. His name was John Symes, S-Y-M-M-E-S. He was born in New Jersey in 1779, was a veteran of the War of 1812, and then died in Hamilton, Ohio in 1829. So that's why he's buried in Hamilton, Ohio. But the bigger mystery that monument with a death star on top of it. The reason he got that instead of a gravestone was because he believed the planet was hollow. The hollow earth theory wasn't a new one when Symes started evangelizing it in 1818. Scientifically, some trace it back to the 17th century and Edmund Haley, the comet guy, as in Haley's Comet. Mythically, it goes back even further, much further in fact, than Christianity placing hell's zip code directly beneath our feet. However, Symes really popularized it by lecturing about the habitable concentric spheres he believed made up the interior of the planet and the 1,400-mile-wide opening to them at each pole. So let me see if I can describe that better. He believed that the Earth was a hollow sphere, that it wasn't dirt down to rock and magma and whatever it is we believe today. Because honestly, I kind of don't know what we believe the Earth is made of today. I know it's rock and magma and maybe a core of some sort. But he thought this earth that we walked on was nothing but a shell, and inside it was open. And the way to get into that openness was through these gigantic holes at the north and south poles of the planet. In fact, some people called these holes Symes holes. After Symes himself, he even got the government to consider funding a mission to prove their existence. It didn't quite work out. They didn't fund it. But he got really close to being able to fund an expedition to see if these massive holes to the center of the Earth actually existed. But whether it was true enough doesn't quite matter. It was still a fun theory to play with. Jules Verne sent us to the center of the Earth. So did Edgar Rice Burroughs. Even Edgar Allan Poe perforated the earth a few times with references to pole holes in his short story, Manuscript Found in a Bottle, in his novel-like thing, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, and in another short story, The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hand's Fall. So Poe liked to use this idea of a hollow earth that you could enter through giant holes in the poles. Maybe he even believed it, I don't know, but at least it was good enough for him to write three different stories about it. And as to me personally, I love the hollow earth theory that we walk on the skin of some great expansive reality thrills me. That below us are dinosaurs or Morlocks or that our world is merely an egg gestating some massive creature really makes me much more happier than the scientific idea that there's a core and maybe some liquid rock and then rock and then rock and then dirt and then us. As a little kid, I used to try to dig to see what was down there. I think I averaged about six inches on each intrepid adventure. It was uh, Syme's son that actually erected that memorial originally, uh, topping it with a stone sphere featuring openings on each end and crisscrossed with latitude and longitude lines, which is why it looks like the Death Star. The thing was refurbished in 1991 when the people of Hamilton realized that they had a point of interest worth pointing at. Today, a walkway in the park is also lined with globes reminiscent of the one atop Symes gravestone. And there's also a historical sign on the edge of the park that explains why there's a solitary stone obelisk in the middle of a park uh, in Hamilton. Like I said, pretty quickly the boys lost interest in me and the stone obelisk and my story of an earth without a center. But that was fine. It's much the same way that people in general lost interest in this theory of a hollow earth. And as for Symes himself, he's six feet closer to the truth. Or 
maybe he isn't. Maybe he's six feet farther from the truth of the hollow earth because there's an even stranger hollow earth theory out there. To learn about that one, we have to go south to Florida. What if I told you that the sky above you is actually the interior of a giant hollow sphere and that the earth you're standing on is its concave interior surface? That's kind of hard to imagine with just me explaining it with those few words. So let me try this. Let's say you're standing in Florida for the purposes of this illustration. Above you is the sun, but past the sun isn't the universe, it's Asia or maybe Australia. So think of it this way. Think of it like the sun is the core of a hollow sphere. It's the yolk in an egg. And you are on the inside of the shell doing whatever you're doing right now. That theory is called cellular cosmogony. And it was the core belief of a group called the Koreshians. And the oddity connected with the Koreshians and cellular cosmogony and this peculiar twist on an already peculiar idea of a hollow earth is an oddity I almost didn't get to see. So here I was in Florida. I was on a business trip. Actually, I was at the end of a business trip. I was heading back to the airport in Fort Myers when I got a notification on my phone that the flight was delayed. So instead of spending the extra hour or so at an airport Burger King, my colleague and friend who I was with and myself took the exit to Corkscrew Road in Estero to find a former religious commune with an extravagant idea about the universe. And they got that extravagant idea, the cellular cosmogony idea, all because of a New York doctor who shocked himself during an alchemy experiment in 1869. His name was Dr. Cyrus Teed, and after that accident, he believed he was a messiah. So he did messiah step number one in the messiah playbook. He started a religion. Well, first he renamed himself Koresh, which is Hebrew for Cyrus, because Koreshian sounds better than Teedites. His gospel was one of reincarnation, immortality, equality of the sexes, communism, and other ideas for making 19th century men and women gasp behind their handkerchiefs. He was a weirdo, and his ideas were appropriately weird for their time. Heck, some of his ideas are weird for this time. He also decided, this Dr. Cyrus Teed, a.k.a. Koresh, that if he was going to upend the world with his teachings, he might as well upend the universe too. He decided that humans lived on the interior surface of a sphere 25,000 miles in circumference. That means from interior to interior, from the ground of one place through the sky to the ground of another place was only 8,000 miles across. He also believed that the sun that we could see with our eyes was the reflection of a central sun in the middle of a sphere that alternated its dark side and light side to create night and day and that most astronomical phenomenon were optical illusions. So this guy really rewrote the story of our planet and the universe. He encased it all within a sphere. So what about outside that sphere? Well, see, he believed that outside the 100-mile shell that we traipse across is nothingness, void, a null set. It was something that couldn't be interpreted as anything in our limited imaginations. In his worldview, the universe is a comfortably bounded and cognizable one. I think. <laughs> I'm explaining this like I know exactly what the cellular cosmogony theory is, but honestly, both the original text and everybody's interpretation of it is really hard to parse. Even weirder than that, even weirder than this idea that's hard to even parse, was the idea that Florida was the promised land. In 1894, he gathered all of the adherents that he had been accumulating in Chicago and headed down to Estero, Florida, where they set up a commune on about a few hundred acres. And they did pretty well, as far as 
cults and communes and people trying to reinterpret the universe go. However, they did fall short of the 8 million population goal that Koresh originally predicted. At its height, the commune encompassed some 250 people living on thousands of acres of glorious concave surface working at all kinds of industry, including a power plant and a bakery and a sawmill and a printing press. So as a commune, they were really, really successful. As a religion, they were, uh, they got 250 people to believe, which is good. It's good. It's hard to get that many followers on social media these days. So today, if you go to that spot... It is now a state park, and it preserves about a dozen buildings, as well as the strange, enclosed history of the Koreshans. It's a beautiful park, no doubt at all, full of palm trees and live oaks right on the Estero River. The Koreshan sites are mostly clustered together in the historical section of the park, right by the entrance, so it's an easy stroll around the property and through the buildings. Now, me and my friend didn't make it through all the buildings due to time, but we saw the big ones, uh, like Art Hall, which was an auditorium full of original artifacts and furniture where the Koreshans would put on plays. There was also a model of their universe there in the corner, and the way they kind of depicted this was they had a globe, like, you know, your classic middle school globe, cut open so that it had two halves, and they were both open, and in the middle of that globe, that open globe, was a central core, and that core was the sun, and the insides of that globe were the surface of the earth. We also went to the founder's house itself, Cyrus Teed slash Koreshan's house itself. It was pretty cool too. Uh, it had an exhibit on the time that the group conducted the Koreshan Geodetic Survey of 1897. They conducted this survey on a Naples beach to prove the inverted shape of the earth. We also checked out the planetary court, which was a sunny two-story dormitory where the seven sisters lived and governed the community. That's right, the seven sisters. They were basically a matriarchy, despite their patriarchal messiah. So, how did this spot of Estero, Florida go from a commune to a state park? That transfer started when the immortal messiah, Koresh himself, died in 1908. Now, catch this part of the story. Koresh's followers, they sincerely believed that he was going to resurrect, that he was immortal, and that this death was just a temporary state of being. So they placed him in a tub just a few days before Christmas, and he laid there in the grimy Florida heat for days. As the body decomposed, children at the commune would ask about the weird colors and growths on the Messiah's body, to which the adults would explain that he was in the middle of a transformation which was not a lie. He was definitely in the middle of a transformation, just not the one they expected. Eventually, even the adults couldn't swallow this tale. His body was just decomposing too much and getting too disgusting. So at the insistence of the local authorities who had thought that this is getting weird and we got to get this dead body in the ground, they buried Dr. Teed. He was buried on a small island nearby and his followers still believed, though, that when he resurrected, he'd still be able to get out of there. When he didn't, the numbers of the Koreshans naturally dwindled. In 1961, there were only four left. So those four people, instead of trying to reignite this cult, they just gave the land to the state. In fact, the last Koreshan was a woman named Hedwig Michael, or Mikhail, I'm not sure, M-I-C-H-E-L. She died in 1982 at the age of 90. And she's actually buried at the commune. We saw her grave ourselves while we were there. Her grave's adorned by a plaque attached to a chunk of rock. So today, the Koreshan religion is basically dead, more or less. Uh, it technically lives on as the College of Life Foundation, which is a historical association dedicated to Southwest Florida generally, and then the Koreshans specifically. So now they're more an item of historical interest than they are a living, breathing entity. And as you'd expect, Dr. Cyrus Koresh Teed never did rise from his grave. 
But we never got to see the grave while we were there at the commune. See, at some point, even the earth itself, the earth that he had reconfigured in such a ballsy, so to speak, way, gave up on him. The grave was destroyed during a hurricane and his coffin was washed out to sea. His grave plaque, or possibly a reproduction of it, I never found out, can be seen at the founder's house at the park. As uh, we explored the grounds, we talked to some of the rangers about their odd assignment, looked in awe at depictions of Koresh's universe, scoured the river for alligators as you do in Florida, and talked about how much flat earthers are in the news and how boring that idea is compared to Koresh's. And then we went to catch a plane. We had to go home. But I will say that catching a plane uh, is not really something you want to do after contemplating alternative cosmogenies. What do you think? Is that a good way to end? Like I said, two martinis, so I'm not sure where to end this. Let's pretend that's a good place. That's what I have for you today. Hollow Earth memorials. Not just Hollow Earth theory. Not just vague stories about Hollow Earthism. Actual places you can go and things you can take photographs of and touch and explore. That's what I'm all about and this podcast is all about. So if you like it, if you like this kind of stuff, if you like this angle of hearing first-hand accounts of these places, I would appreciate some stars. Uh, no, I can't do it this time. Give me stars if you want to, but don't if you don't want to. Uh, nothing ready to plug. Uh, my latest book just came out about a week ago, a week and a half ago, 12 Nights at Rotter House. It has nothing to do with Hollowworthism. It is totally a haunted house novel. And if you dig those, or if you don't, um, I'm seeing that a lot of people who are tired of haunted house novels seem to like this one because it's a little bit different and it accepts the idea that haunted house novels are a bit overdone. I do want to do one thing. See, I was given the idea for a podcast by a listener who was interested in hearing my wife's perspective on what we do, on oddity, on Otis, on traveling so much, on using our weekends as road trips. And I think this is a good idea. I've never been able to kind of give Lindsay a spotlight in this because mostly Otis is a written medium and she just doesn't care to do that. But podcasts are an ideal and casual and non-confrontational way to talk about stuff like that. So I think I, I think for a future podcast, ideally for the next one, depending on the response, I want to interview Lindsay and see what she thinks about this oddity hunting life that she somehow connected herself to. But I don't want to just ask my questions. And I do have questions, questions that I have not been able to broach <laughs> before, but I think under the auspices of a podcast, I'm allowed to. Um, besides those questions, I would love to hear questions you might have for her. Uh, send those to me at my email address, uh, O-C-K-E-R-J-W at gmail.com. You can post them on the Otis Facebook page, post them on Twitter. There are way too many ways to get questions to me. So do that, please. And I will do an episode, another new kind of episode for the Otis podcast, the Odd Things I've Seen podcast, where I get to interview somebody. So let me know what you think of that. And otherwise, I will see you. Not really. You will hear me on the next episode of Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. <laughs>